Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. This episode finds us chatting with professional engineer Herb Roberts about developing an advanced jet engine for the U.S. military, the potential for repairing composite materials, and the time that his engineering simulations nearly shut down his employer's payroll. The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 75, Vectored Thrust, February 5th, 2015. So Jeff, what's the biggest engine you've ever worked on? Well, you know, it's really uh, kind of a misnomer to say I really worked on an engine. You know, I've, I've uh, tuned them up, I've tweaked them, uh, I've worked on carburetors, but I've never torn an engine apart, not even a, uh, you know, a two-stroke engine for a gas blower or something. I, that's one of the things I'd like to do someday, but I, I never really got around to it. I was more the uh, the work on the electronic things or, uh, you know, I was a kid, I was working on my dad's uh, Trash 80, doing a little programming, something like that. I was much more into the electronic side than I ever was on the engine side. How about you? Uh, I've torn apart a two-stroke, not successfully, but uh, <laughs> otherwise it's pretty limited. Replaced a vacuum hose once on a old Ford Explorer, and my uh, motorcycle occasionally gets a little finicky, but otherwise, no, I try to stay on the electrical side. Yeah. Well, I had to, at one point I had a uh, 1968 Firebird convertible, and I just loved that car, but it broke down everywhere, and... Uh, if if I'd known how to work on engines, maybe, or I'd had, you know, the capability to do so, maybe I worked on that engine a bit more. But at the time, I was living in an apartment complex, and, you know, the car sat outside, and I had virtually no place to, to you know, put the engine even up on uh, uh, blocks or anything. It was it would have been tough to work on it there. So, no, never never really spent a lot of time working on engines. I, I worked at places where, uh, I worked at a, a place where they did uh, military transmissions, and uh, so there were a lot of test cells where engines were running, driving the uh, the engine transmission package together. But uh, never did much of that myself, uh, you know. But we talked recently about uh, the complexity of trying to do something like uh, working on a uh, the the engines at uh, Ford Motor Company. Somehow in the conversation, it came up the complexity of trying to design something like that, and it would take lots of people to design that kind of engine. And uh, so this evening we've we've got as our guest uh, someone who's uh, worked on developing an engine for the U.S. military, a jet engine. And so our guest for this episode is Herb Roberts, a professional engineer who helped develop the Pratt and Whitney turbofan engine that powers the U.S. military's F-22 stealth fighter. Herb, welcome to the Engineering Commons. Thank you very much. I appreciate your invitation, and I've been enjoying your past episodes. So I look forward to it. Oh, well, fantastic. Thank you. Well, we're so glad that you're able to join us. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about what got you interested in engineering? Sure. My, uh, my, I guess I had what people often refer to as the knack. I, uh, I seem to enjoy, <laughs> I seem to enjoy taking things apart. Right. I had a high level of curiosity. Um, my mother claimed that I basically took everything apart in the house at one time or another. And about 95% got everything back together and working. But um, I was able to uh, basically grow up in a family. My dad worked with the military 
and we did a lot of traveling. And uh, I was always exposed to uh, Air Force bases, Navy bases, Army bases, and uh, I loved looking at military tanks. I loved looking at B-52 bombers, and I loved looking at uh, big Navy ships. And so I was just fascinated with uh, the mechanisms and gears and how everything was put together. So that got my interest going. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, along the way, I basically uh, lived in a couple of different countries off overseas with the military um, moves we did. And uh, my my real exposure was uh, to Formula, Formula One racing, which I enjoyed watching. I lived in Europe for a while and I didn't play soccer very well. And uh, uh, beyond soccer, the really was, uh, motor racing sports were the uh, key areas that they have. Uh, so looking at that, um, that was the, uh, you know, something that drew me into it. And uh, I kind of got uh, attracted to the cars as well as the personalities behind the drivers and the personalities behind the teams that build the cars themselves. Sure. So is it still a passion? Are you? Uh... Yeah. Uh, well, I, I actually was, I grew I'm, I'm a little older than everybody here. So I grew up on the Nicky Lauda era of Formula One car racing. And uh, mm -hmm. I guess probably when I got into more of the aerospace side of it, I just kind of never really had time to do it. But my early 20s, I, I really did follow, uh, you know, indie cars and uh, such. But, you know, I would say I haven't been following it much uh, lately. But I, I have kind of really started looking at, uh, at uh, yachts and uh, basically America's Cup boats. Again, I, I'm, I deal a lot with composites, so I tend to go where the best composites are right now. Uh, America's Cup boating is where it's at. Interesting. And and so when you got ready to go to school, you know, go to head off to college, was there any doubt in your mind about what field you're going to, into? I mean, if you're an F1 fan, you could go into uh, the mechanical side. You can obviously go into the electrical side. You can go into the airflow aeronautical side. How did you decide what you wanted to major in? Well, I mean, that's a good question. I, I really was, I, I did a lot of Heath kits or these electrical uh, kits when I was young and I also built a, a couple of boats uh, with my family. So uh, I picked mechanical because I, I was very much a generalist. And uh, being a mechanical engineer, I, I thought it would give me the best opportunity to work in almost any field I wanted to. Uh, my initial plan was to become a car uh, engineer. So I, I focused on composites and I focused on kinematics so that I could become a suspension or mechanisms person. And so uh that's why I picked mechanical engineering and uh, a lot of mechanical engineering when you first get into it, it has to deal a lot with heat transfer and steam tables and such. Mm -hmm. And so I was, I was one of those students who <clears throat> uh, I tried to study those just the night before and then dump the answer <laughs> on the test and then get on to what I really thought was important, which was material systems and, and kinematics. And uh, unfortunately those were all you know, junior and senior level classes. So I had to say my first two, uh, two levels of the engineering school, it was a, a dealing with anticipation. Okay, enough of this, enough of this, let's move on, move on. <laughs> and uh, and that kind of <clears throat> led me down the path. I I, I basically uh, approached my school as, as trying to, you know, I, you know, again, being an engineer, I, I just kind of look at metrics and numbers and I just kind of, you know, targeted all the classes I thought were going to be hardest. And I try to get those out of the way first so I could savor or enjoy the, the longest living classes. And by the time I got to my junior year, I had uh, gotten through all my humanities and undergraduate studies that didn't do with technical engineering. And I, I really felt a burnout because I basically had nothing but intense engineering classes for like my last three semesters of school. Mm. You had nothing to water down the fuel. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and, and actually, that's kind of an interesting thing because um, 
I, I was at the point where I, I really felt like I needed to turn my brain off of engineering. And, um, and I was walking around the campus and I came across the AIAA um, booth. They had one, one time up at an engineering fair and they had a book there called Herman the German. And uh, I'd lived in Germany and it just appealed to the name of me. And so I thought, oh, that's interesting. I'll just pick that book up and read it. And there was another book right next to it called Not Much of an Engineer. So I said that I was going to spend the weekend just doing nothing but reading these two books to get kind of flush my brain of technical stuff. And it turns out that Herman the German was a story about Gerhard Newman, who uh, was a mechanic for the Flying Tigers and, and during World War II, and then came on to be uh, GE, and uh, he actually invented the variable vane and gas turbine engines. And then the other book was called Not Much of an Engineer, and unfortunately I can't remember the man's name, but he turned out to be a fellow who worked at Rolls-Royce and was a compressor designer and helped develop the Rolls-Royce Pegasus engine, which was used in the uh, Harrier jump jet. Neat. So so was that a uh, sort of an epiphany for you, or you, you already knew that a career in uh, related to aviation might be in your future? Well, I, I knew aviation was going to be in my future because all the automotive and racing teams were basically going through hard economic times and nobody was coming to school to interview. <laughs> so, um, you know, basically the best interview you can get is the one you can actually get an interview with. And uh, yeah. although I, I really was trying to get into – I wanted to get into GM and possibly work in their truck division. I wanted to uh, – I really wanted to work for All-American Racers, which was a Dan Gurney's racing organization. But uh, those things never really worked out. But I did get an interview with Pratt Whitney. And uh, I really kind of – it was probably my fourth interview – and I was just getting to the point where I really, the first interview I had, you know, everybody takes one of those ones where you don't really ever plan to work with, but you kind of tune yourself up with asking questions with. Mm -hmm. So by the time I got to Pratt Whitney, I was in my full form. And unfortunately, the guy who was uh, giving the interview pointed to a sheet that had all the pictures of the engines that Pratt Whitney worked on. And he pointed to an engine called the F-114. And he also pointed to an engine called the Pegasus. And immediately I said, hey, those aren't Pratt Whitney engines. The F-114 is a GE engine, and that Pegasus is a Rolls-Royce engine. And I saw him pick a pencil and, like, write down on the piece of paper right in front of me some kind of note. And I went, oh, wow, I just blew my interview. I just kind of, <laughs> you know, and, and then it turns out that, you know, I was the only person who in the room had, you know, that he had interviewed actually had recognized an engine by name. And it was because of those two books I read. Uh that I, I, you know, if I had not had that one weekend where I read those books, I would never have even recognized those names. But, uh, you know, I walked out of there kind of my head hung low going, wow, you know, here I thought I was, you know, working on all, all, all my great skills. And here I blew the interview. And the next day I got a phone call and they said, we want you to come down to West Palm Beach, Florida for an interview. And I was like, wow. And it just, I just shocked, you know, and uh, it was kind of a whirlwind <laughs> tour. I, I went down and a week later, I uh, got toured around the plant. I actually had seven interviews while I was at the site. And they kept asking me all about my experience with composite materials. And, you know, it was interesting because they would say, tell me about composites. And I would give them my whole story about how I started building cars and building boats and all these other things that I've worked on. And then they would have no follow-up question. They kind of had this look like they they were really had big smiles, like you could answer a question about composites, but they really didn't know much. And I took <laughs> it as being curious but then I realized that they were looking to hire composite people, but they knew nothing about it themselves. Yeah. So, and Pratt and Whitney were primarily military engines, correct? 
Uh, yes, Pratt Whitney had two two sites, one area in Hartford, Connecticut, which were the primary commercial engines, and then the site in West Palm Beach was set up as a military site, and they pretty much did at that time the F-15 and F-16s used what we call the F-100 engine, uh, and then also the F-14s flew what, what we call the TF-30 engine, and they were at that time, this was the tail end of the 80s, uh, there were some other planes in the, in the Air Force and the Navy contracts that were going out of uh, out of style, but Pratt Whitney was very famous, of course, for the SR-71 engine as well. That was actually the J-58 that was in the SR-71, which is why that West Palm Beach facility was set up, because originally that engine was going to be burning, uh, a different version of that engine was going to be burning pure hydrogen, and it was so dangerous that in the Hartford, they couldn't uh, distill the hydrogen within the city limits, so they went down to the, uh, as they say, the swamps of Florida to generate the hydrogen, but then that didn't work out, so they ended up with the uh, with the fuel that they have now. Wasn't that par- uh, partially discussed in Ben Rich's book? Yes. Yes. About never work with never work with liquid hydrogen? Yeah. <laughs> you know, hydrogen is one of those things that's so small that, that you can never fix a leak. And the one thing you don't want is leaky hydrogen around, you know, an open flame. And uh, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Herb, I bl- – I believe I understood correctly that you were working on uh, drones long before they came popular with hobbyists. Yes, I, I actually, I didn't mention this. I went to Mississippi State University, and uh, I, I happened to go there because my, my father was tied to the Columbus Air Force Base, which was right next to that area. And this was my, you know, um, it was cheap because I got to live on with home with him and go to school. But it turns out that Mississippi State had a, a facility called the Raspit Flight Research Laboratory, and it was named after a guy named August Raspit, who who built the very first all-composite plane and flew it back in around 1961. Um, he was a what they call the uh, a, a high lift specialist. He was he was very into what they call short takeoff and landing kind of research. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, he was flying one of his prototype planes and it crashed and he died. But the, the legacy lived on, and the Raspit Flight Lab was very famous for composites. Uh, being that they, you know, that to keep the planes as light as possible for these short takeoff and landing situations. Um, so I had a, a sort of a composite background myself. I had built a couple of projects out of fiberglass with my dad. Uh, we had our boat ourselves that we had repaired a few times. And uh, and again, being around Formula One, I knew a lot about composites just in person. So I, I started out as a sort of a technician while I was going to school and uh I ended up building a, the Raspit Lab basically got contracts from the government and we ended up building four or five different types of uh, prototype drones. And some of them we had uh, avionics on that were just, you know, groundbreaking avionics. You know, it, was, it wasn't quite the uh, glowing tubes, but it wasn't quite the icy chips. You know, it was somewhere in the breadboarded world of uh, control systems. Mm-hmm. And we had a drone plane that could take off from our runway with a person with a hand controller. And then we had a guy in the back of a van with another controller set up with a room and a screen. And there was a camera on board of the plane. And so we would switch control over. And then somebody like me would drive the van all over town. And the guy in the back of the van would be flying the plane from a, And then we had another plane in the air chasing the drone to make sure wherever it ended up. And as I mentioned, you know, the composites itself were, you know, new uh, skill to try to get these planes as light as possible. And the avionics was uh, kind of unique. Uh, once in a while, we lost a few planes, and you know we had to spend a few days digging around in the woods in the guys' pastures. 
finding a few planes. But yes, we we did a lot of work, and it it was we didn't really you know as a as a young guy I was I was fascinated with building and designing these planes, and to me it reminded me of a radio control plane, but it really had much more sophistication. And it wasn't until you know ten years, twenty years later that you start seeing them fly all over you know the the Middle East, and you realize hey I was on the ground floor developing all of those. Now speaking on the ground floor of it. While I was at at Raspit, um, they did have a, quite a reputation for composites. And Honda Research and Development came to the university and said that the university used to give training classes where they would invite people from various industries to come in, and we would build these composite um, panels as sort of a you know, training exercise to, you know, show this latest state of the art work in uh, in composites. And Honda Research and Development came and said they wanted to attend that session. And so they said, okay, uh, that would be fine. And they said, well, how long do you want to come here? And they said, uh, we want to be here for 18 months. And they kind of <laughs> like said, what? <laughs> and, and it turns out that they were very much interested in building a composite airplane. And they didn't really want to explain much why they wanted to do it. They just wanted to say that they wanted to get involved in composites. And, mm-hmm. of course, my background in racing thought, oh, they're trying to figure out how to build a Formula One car out of, you know, out of basically using aircraft to high technology because aircrafts were kind of leading the composite world. So um, they we, they brought about eight of their engineers over and they built us a building uh, off the side of our facility. And they basically would set up video cameras and we would basically go through the exercise of building uh, rudders and elevators and different things. And what we ended up doing is we, we took a, a plane that already flew that had a turboprop engine in it. And piecewise, we took the wings off of it and built composite wings and replaced them, aluminum wings with composite wings. And we just kept doing that. We did the rudder first. We did the elevators next. We did the wings next. And then they built the fuselage and they kind of took a plane that worked and piecewise built it backwards into a composite plane. And that was the origin of the prototype that is now known as the Honda Jet, which is soon to be on sale very soon as well. Oh, fantastic. I think it just completed type cert. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, it, it. Um, you know, they never really mentioned to us. They, you know, we were kind of concerned because they were very much into the composite idea, and they were really pushing the limit of our facility. In fact, I, I ended up building a, a very large curing oven that you know we had never built before to, to do the whole fuselage as one of the projects when I worked at the center. And it was interesting because they never really talked much about the power plant. You know, we had this turboprop engine that we would use to fly the plane around with. But I thought, you know, Honda would be, you know, much more interested in the engine and getting the Honda engine in there. And then, of course, if you look at the Honda jet, they had had a jet engine all along. And, of course, the way they mount the jets above the wing was very unique. And they never showed us that back in the in the time frame I worked with them. But clearly that was on their mind of how to build this ultimate business jet. Now, the composites at the time uh, that you were working with Honda were because composites right now i mean i hate to say it in general but if you're doing structural composites on an airframe would that be cured in a uh vacuum kiln right uh we we had you know we had a wide range um what you're referring to is probably what we we, we refer to as pre-preg where you yeah. have the fiber and you have the resin mixed into it and you basically keep these rolls inside of a freezer and then right before you use them, you bring them out and you cut them into various shapes and you lay them up and then you bag it with a vacuum system to off gas it. And then you heat it up and then the, the resin, you know, goes through a, 
exothermal reaction and basically gets hard and encapsulates the fibers inside of it. So yes, that we were using that technique for their planes. Uh, but the research lab also used wet layups as well, which is where, you know, similar to what a boat would be, where we would either put woven mesh down and then with a paintbrush, paint on the resin, uh, various levers. Now, there's a little bit different in the fact that weight control-wise, you pr probably want to go with a pre-preg, but, you know, depending on, you know, what your surface was and what kind of impact you needed or resilience and such, you would do a wet layup. So a lot of times what you'd end up doing is doing a pre-preg for the a majority of the part, and then you would do a wet layup to do the final joints where the critical bonds were. No, yes, uh, yes, that's, I mean, it, we, we worked off of S-glass, we worked off of Kevlar, we worked off of carbon mm -hmm. fiber, so. And I, I guess the question, I, I'll refine my question. Sure. When I see Boeing or a large manufacturer put a huge piece into a giant, uh, uh, it looks like a huge steel room. We call it an autoclave, yes. Yeah, an autoclave. I, I, that's what I thought it was, but then I, again, that might have been surgical. But anyways, um, is that at atmosphere or does it actually pull a vacuum? Well, there's two things. What we do is we, we take the entire part and we'll put a plastic bag around it. And yeah, we'll vacuum draw, bag. We will draw a vacuum on it so that it basically has essentially negative 15 PSI on it. Uh -huh. But then when it goes inside the autoclave, in addition to adding heat to it, they'll pressurize the autoclave sometimes up to 50 PSI or higher. Oh. So the delta force would be somewhere, you know, 60, 70 PSI. Now, you can't go too high and actually crush it or move things when you don't intend to. But yes, you do get much more than just the vacuum. You, you can pressurize the system up. Interesting. And, you know, for a shell, like, um, you know, the early composites were developed by NASA because, again, they were just using shell designs where they were just basically building these big cylinders. Um, those type of things, you know, you could basically uh, bag them up and pressurize them, and they, they weren't too difficult to make. Um, now, when you talk about Boeing, when you talk about the leading and trailing edge where you have a tapered nose, then it gets a little artsy because then, you know, the fibers have to lay out, and, uh, you know, you can't just have a transition of a, a cylindrical shape to a conical shape without having to really adjust how your fibers lay on the part. Um, so that's that's actually, uh, you know, if you want to look at from the 1980s to the what we, you know, today, the main difference isn't so much the composite material, it's the ability to transition the material shape from a, a simple shape to a very complex shape without generating a lot of voids or a lot of bent fibers that you don't necessarily want to have. Hmm. Very interesting. So this evening, Herb, if we could, we're we're going to use your uh, your knowledge and your background, your experience to uh, learn a little bit about how the engine for the F twenty two Raptor uh, was developed. Yes, and so let me lay out i I guess the the baseline as I understand of what the what the situation was, and if I if I get it wrong, please jump in and uh, correct me. Sure. So around nineteen eighty one, the Air Force. Uh, posted requirements for a new tactical fighter uh, to replace the F-15, known as the Eagle, and the F-16, known as the Fighting Falcon. And a number of companies submitted proposals. And a few years, years later, in 1986, after those proposals were reviewed, two teams were selected to undertake a four-year development phase. And these two teams, as I understand it, were pretty much uh, teams gathered together and said, if you win, we'll join your team and if we win, you join our team. And so when the contracts were awarded, then the teams jumped, you know, they sort of built themselves. Uh, and in the end, the contracting, uh, the contractor teams were, uh, team A was Lockheed, Boeing, and General Dynamics, and team B was 
Northrop, and McDonnell Douglas. And so each team, uh, design team, produced two prototype vehicles, uh, one for each of two engine options. And these aircraft were designated the YF-22, which was the Lockheed team that eventually became the F-22. And the other was the YF-23, which was the Northrop version. Correct. Okay. And so the Lockheed team sort of focused on thrust vectoring, enhanced maneuverability, and the Northrop team uh, employed fixed engine nozzles to enhance uh, their stealth capability and speed. Right. And so there was a little difference in philosophy going into it. And so you were involved in, in designing and helping figure out the engine. And the engine that was developed by Pratt & Whitney was a afterburning turbofan. Correct. So for those of us that are not actively involved in jet engine terminology, can you give us a brief you know, reminder of what it means to be a turbofan and what, a, what makes it such an engine an afterburning turbofan? Sure. Um, you know, the original engines that, say, were developed as, quote-unquote, jet engines basically had a cylindrical inlet if they were an axial design compressor, meaning they had a central shaft they spun around with uh, blades on them. And mm-hmm. you would draw the air in, and all the air that went in the end was the same air that made it to the combustor area and then got heated up and get pushed out the back end of the of the, the turbine. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Now, somewhere along the line... Um, that that leads to a very high level, what we call specific fuel consumption, because all the air coming in gets burned up and with fuel. And then, you know, your air to fuel ratio is such that if you're bringing in, say, 125 pounds of air per second, you've got to add enough fuel in there so that it burns to match that pound per second flow. So, mm-hmm. you know, so you end up with you end up with a very narrow, small engine, but it, it basically you need huge gas tanks. So the okay. idea was that, that they could add what, quote, unquote, what they call a fan was. And what a fan was, was a, a not just a propeller with two blades, but a multi-multi-blade propeller. So about, you know, 40 blades on top of it. And then what they developed, what they call the bypass ratio. And so the idea was that all the air that comes into the front of the engine, you would take a ratio of, say, like five to one. So for every one pound of air that went into the center part of the engine, five pounds would go around the outside of it. Now, that essentially means that you have kind of a combination of a propeller fan pulling the engine forward by biting into the, like a propeller would, and then you have the jet engine shooting out the back with a little bit of thrust. Mm -hmm. And so a a typical military, like Air Force engine, would have a bypass ratio of like somewhere between three to five to one um, ratios. So that meant that they basically, they were relatively fast, but they burned less fuel than a, a pure jet. Now, that was great for, say, like an F-15 and F-16 because they had an ability to get refueled in the air or they could land in, at a different military base and get refueled. On the Navy side of it, when they have an, um, an aircraft carrier, they preferred engines that were like 7 to 1 or 9 to 1 ratios because they didn't have any place to land to get refueled. You know, they, they were very limited by having their carriers. Right. And so they wanted a better fuel consumption rate. So they gave up a top speed for having more ability to uh, what they call loiter around in the air. But sure. basically the, the turbofan concept basically added a better level of fuel efficiency onto, a, uh, onto an engine and, uh, and gave the people uh, you know, more speed. Now, in order to get, get around um, some of the loss you'd get from not just burning it as a pure rocket, then they developed an afterburner where, you know, you could basically run on economy mode 
And then when you need an instant amount of fuel, uh, instant amount of speed, you could dump a lot of fuel in the back end of the into the afterburner and then, you know, basically turn your engine into basically a, a very much of a rocket per se. But, um, you know, you couldn't fly like that for any sustained period of time. It was just, you know, one of those instances where you got out of danger and then you got back into uh, um, business. And that was the basic problem with the F-15s and F-16s. The F-15 was really designed as a loitering plane that would go around and secure a perimeter. And the F-16 was sort of like the uh, the the plane that would fly in and drop the big bomb and then rush back out. And mm-hmm. so uh, if you had to go a long distance, say, like if you were going to leave the United States and fly to, you know, some, say, just we'll pick a country like Antarctica, you know, you're not going to get there in one tank of fuel. So you have to get refueled and then you have to come back. And so the challenge would be, you know, if you would go that far of a distance, then they want to be able to get there with the least amount of refueling systems because then you have to fly all these other tankers out. And so mm-hmm. it gets again, instead of sending one plane out, you're sending like 20 planes in. Right. All right. So to get back to your original story about the uh, the F-22 and the F-23. Um, I got a question for you. Oh, sure. Well, when do we start transitioning away from turbojets to turbofans? Um, probably right in around the mid-60s. Uh, the, you know, the, the very famous, um, uh, you know, John Glenn was an ace in the Korean War. And his plane was probably one of the last planes uh, at that time. Uh, it was like the you know F seventy eight Saber Fighter, I believe that was plane was. Uh-huh. Um, that was the like last one that was like mostly a jet. And then it was the un- it, 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 when you came into say like the Vietnam era fighters, so like the F four and uh, the A six. That's when we started getting you know uh, more of a fan. Of course, <clears throat> you know I was saying nine to one. Those were like three to one. You know they. They were uh-huh. they were much closer to jets than they are today. I mean, a, a commercial airline airliner would be almost like thirteen or fifteen to one bypass, you know, for fuel economy. But uh, but that yeah, it was it was it was the transition between the military jets of the Korean War to the Vietnam era was when they that, that happened. So I would say early sixties. Okay, and and so when all this started, the the two teams one was Lockheed led and one was Northrop led, but but in that collection of names i didn't mention either pratt pratt and whitney or ge who were the two engine manufacturers competing all right how did pratt and whitney and ge get involved in this whole thing if uh, if these other companies were leading the uh, uh leading the charge okay well um <clears throat> i'll back up and, and talk about a little i'll give you a perspective about where we were sure um, in the 1980s um there was you know prior to the 1980s we went through the the end of the space program Okay. And then there was, you know, everybody was happy. We landed on the moon. We went to the moon, I think it was five times. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden that, the, that, the, the ability to fund that fell apart and Pratt Whitney and GE both suffered uh, financially when those decisions were to cut funding for those programs. Um, and then around the mid seventies, uh, you know, the, the Vietnam era was tapering down and, uh, you know, by 75, all the military money that was going to Vietnam was going away. And then Jimmy Carter became president. And, you know, inflation, if you recall, at that time was horrendously high. And the, the military contracts were all being cut very badly. So mm-hmm. all of these companies you're mentioning were on the verge of being bankrupt. And that's why they started teaming up because, they, they you know, they, they went through an area where they were selling a lot of um, equipment to not only you have to remember in the commercial world, 
the era of the jet engine was from the 60s and 70s. You know, everybody was flying turboprops or prop planes. And, you know, everybody wanted to fly a jet to go to Europe and go across the United States. So there was a huge growth on the commercial side and a huge growth on the military side. And all of a sudden, all the, the funding just kind of fell apart. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I hired into Pratt Whitney, um, they were looking to uh, address the need for this engine. And uh, it was only when Ronald Reagan became president that he decided he wanted to increase the military spending. And so all these companies kind of lined back up. But at the same time, you know, it wasn't an infinite amount of money so that they basically realized, well, we can either go go bankrupt being an individual or we can be employed as a team membership. Right. And, and one of the reasons, uh, and as I referred to earlier, the reason why Pratt Whitney was building the F-414 and the Pegasus engine when I was interviewing was because there was a, an effort to have both companies build the same engine as a means to control cost. So they took a GE design and had Pratt Whitney build the same engine. And therefore, that way, GE couldn't have a monopoly on selling that engine to the government. Mm-hmm. And the Pegasus engine was a slightly different story. It was an it was a it was an engine produced by Rolls Royce, but because they weren't a U.S. flag um, business, they couldn't use that engine in a military jet. It had to be produced by an American supplier in case war broke out. And so mm-hmm. that's why. And so <clears throat> the effort really was that when I joined um, Pratt Whitney, they were just realizing that the F-15 and F-16, which was their bread and butter, was coming to an end. And they realized that they needed to get the next level of technology up. And so they were completely independent when it came to the airframers. In fact, when I joined um, Pratt Whitney and I got through all my security clearances, we had no idea what the plane looked like. We didn't even know who was making the plane. We didn't even know about the partnerships, about it. Um, We basically were given a deck of paper that said, at a certain altitude, this plane must fly at this velocity. At a certain altitude, this plane must fly at this velocity. Uh, you know, it was what they call an envelope. Right. It was a parameter. And and GE was basically given the same information. And what they, the plan was is to have GE develop an engine, have Pratt Whitney develop an engine, and whoever won that contract was going to get the contract and essentially who was going to basically um, be funded to go on to the next 10, 20 years of production. And right. so uh, that's, you know, from when, from I have to say that I came in sort of like an ostrich in my head in the sand. I was hired in to do composite work. I knew I was going to work on this brand new engine, but I didn't know anything about where the engine was going to be used or who was who was in it. Or we didn't even know if the plane had one engine in it or two engines in it. We didn't know <laughs> if it had one pilot in it or two pilots. Well, well, so how in the world did you design anything if you didn't know the configuration of the plane and you didn't know the number of engines? Where do you even start? Exactly. And, and that's, I mean, that's ultimately, that's the ultimate question to ask. Um, there were, you know, um, there were three or four people in our organization who knew those two or three specific things they needed to know, but they weren't allowed to tell us, and, you know, it's sort of like Marco Polo <laughs> kind of thing where they say, okay, we want to put this part in and we're going to do this and we're going to, you know. And so, uh, and of course, the way you start designing a jet engine is first you figure out what's the maximum speed and how much flow and how much fuel consumption do you need? And those fundamental questions we've got to answer without knowing the airframer. You know, just said, okay, if the speed is X 
and you're going to be flying at this altitude, then our our empirical knowledge of jet engines said that this is what the fuel consumption rate is. If that's the fuel consumption rate, that means what the thermal output of the engine is going to be. And if you have thermal output, then this is the kind of material you need to use. And if this is the kind of material you need to use, then this is how many stages it needs to have. And so that you basically end up, you know, working backwards to solve the problem. And, you know, it's kind of right. like, it's, it's, it's sort of like, um, it's a little bit of a synthesis and a little bit of genesis. You know, you, you, if you were going to build a house, you'd say, well, I want three bedrooms, two bath. Well, you know, an architect could put those in any place he wanted to, as long as it fit that criteria. Well, jet engines aren't quite that way. You know, the fan always comes first, the combustor comes next, and the turbine comes. But that's basically what we did. Is we we took we took what was, and that's and Pratt Whitney's specialty was advanced materials. Now, when they say advanced materials, they meant metals, and they were really good on being building single crystal nickel, and they were also really good on building powder metallurgical which would basically mean very creep-resistant metals. And in right. a turbine, when you have high temperatures, that's what that was the bread and butter of making that engine uh, work, was keeping that engine uh, uh, so that it didn't creep and, and uh, fail over time at high temperatures. Yeah. So, so, okay, so was, was there sort of a, a difference in philosophy? Then we talked uh, about the difference between Lockheed and Northrop and how they were approaching uh, maneuverability versus speed. Right. Uh, was there a similar type of philosophical difference between what uh, you were doing at Pratt and Whitney and what GE was trying to accomplish? Um, well, the, the answer I can answer today is yes, but at the time I had no idea. Uh, right. You know, we, we knew that we, there, there was an initiative by the Air Force that said, whatever the engine is in the F-15, in that, and, you know, in terminology, they call that a Gen 4 engine. And so the Gen 5 engine had to have twice the thrust of weight. So you could either do that by turning the flame up and getting hotter and producing more thrust, or you could trim the weight out of the engine and produce the same amount of thrust with less stages, or you do a combination of both. And of course, you had to do a combination of both. Right. So, so basically, the plan was that we were going to develop basically a 35,000-pound um, thrust engine, but weigh... Uh, essentially half the, the weight uh, or, you know, close to as we could. And that's why a lot of the polymer composites. So the whole front end, end, of, end of the engine that used to be built out of titanium all switched over to become graphite composite. And the back end where the nozzle was, where they directed the 2D areas, um, which would traditionally be nickels, they started slipping in ceramic composites into that area. Uh, and a lot of that stuff came out of like the, there was also a plane called the National Aerospace Plane. Uh, you remember the space shuttle had these special tiles on the bottom of it. So similar type technologies they were sliding in, and then similar, uh, you know, composite things as we mentioned, like from automotive racing and boat marines started slipping in the front of the engine. Now GE, we learned years later, um, came up with a different engine design where instead of materials, what they did is they had a, a what they call these trap doors. That, were, that would basically cut the air off on their bypass fan, and that would basically change their their bypass ratio from, say, like 5 to 1 to like 9 to 1 by opening and closing these doors. So mm -hmm. they, they it was basically stepping up to a controller logic and letting the controller logic decide whatever the pilot wanted to fly, they would operate these doors. And you have to remember in this era, this is early, I mean, early 90s, um, you know, the mechanical computing mechanism really wasn't, you know, as good as it is today. 
So right. it, it, they were taking a big risk on trying to introduce a technology uh, that was basically a uh, off of the FADAC controller. Right. And 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 real quick, a FADAC is? Oh, boy. Uh, full engine digital automated controller, I believe. Uh, I, I probably got that wrong. Full authority? Full authority. So that's it. Okay. Full authority digital engine control? Engine control, yes. Okay. Right. And uh, Herb... So one of the stories that when we get done, we want to talk about the, uh, the, the promise of, of economic promise for these companies going into what happened. So when you went into this early on, you know, what was the internal estimate as to how many engines your company was going to be selling a year? Sure. Uh, we, we had a tradition when I first joined Pratt Windy of selling somewhere between 400 and 500 F15 or F16 engines per year. And that was sort of the, the baseline of how they paid the light bills at the company, selling 400 engines a year. The original quote uh, that we priced the uh, the 119 engine out as was at 125 units. So we had to sell a minimum of 125 units to make a profit based on the, the influx of money we used to, spend, to develop the engine. And the original target was somewhere in the order of 500 to 700 engines per year were going to be sold. And the vision was, and you have to remember that the Soviet Union was still at that time a big foe of the U.S. The vision was that all of the 15s and all the 16s would basically fade away and the F-22 would come in and replace those planes uh, with their super cruise capability uh, that would allow them to go much deeper without having to use an afterburner to uh, to get up into a high level rates of speed. Yeah. So what happens when the uh, federal government decides to only buy 270 of them. Well, that, that's the, that's basically the problem is, you know, it's sort of like, um, you know, if I agree to paint your house and uh, I go buy 500 gallons of paint and then you say, no, just paint my porch, then I, I got to come up with a way to figure out how to pay for all that paint. So now, you know, my hourly rate's going to go from $13 an hour to like $1,300 an hour now scenario. So that's basically... <laughs> I mean, that's essentially what the, the air framers did as well, is Pratt Whitney basically said, you know, your original agreement was that we were going to sell this many units. And now that the economics and the Soviet Union decline doesn't require that many planes. So now we're going to start transitioning the, the price up a little higher to get, you know, to basically pay back. You know, because, you know, as a corporation, they had to basically take a loan out like the way you would buy a house and to do the development of the engine so that when you got into production, you would pay the loan back off. And sometimes you take the loan out by writing, you know, you know, uh, going to a banker, and sometimes you do it internally within the company. But either way, it's a lot of money you're investing that's taking, you know, in the system. And that's one of the biggest complaints about the F-22 when it finally came to fruition was that by the time they, they launched it, the plane had slipped. And, I, and I, these numbers are going to be a little bit off, but originally the, the plan was that a, a full plane and engine system would be about $40 million a plane. And I think when they finally totaled it up, it was, under, it was closer to $60 million a plane. And so that only made it worse because then they said, oh, my God, with that price tag, we're going to even buy less. You know, Congress was only allocating money. to you know, And so that it just basically just aggravated the problem. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's always hard to predict exactly what uh, what the economic situation is going to be. You know, right. six I, months out, much less six years or 60 years out. Right. And I, and I think that's one of the things I learned about working for a large corporation was, you know, if, if I was a one man organization or an entrepreneur, I would be serving a very narrow market and I would have my, you know, basically my, my eyes and ears open about everything. But, you know, when you're working for a corporation, 
Sometimes you wonder, is it because the corporate leaders of the company don't want to do something, or sometimes it's the politicians that don't want to pay for it, or sometimes it's the Air Force itself that decides all of a sudden that engine system isn't what they need for future military requirements. Right. So the long story short is that basically we were given, uh, you know, essentially a paper engine. Uh, we we did hit hit our weight goals. We did hit our thrust goals. Uh, but again, we still had no idea what the plane was, and we had no idea how GE uh, hit their weight and thrust goals. And um, we basically we Pratt Whitney uh, in West Palm Beach, you know, they have engine test stands that are right there on the ground, and that's considered essentially the the densest air you can get, which is basically um, you know uh, sea level uh, right. testing. So we had about eight test stands, and so we would put all our, these engines up and run them for durability. Some engines, they ran them for peak torque. You know, some of them ran them for vibration analysis. Some ran them for fuel control systems. Some ran them. So we, they ran all these very different engines all the time. Uh, and then you also have to test the engines at high altitude. And there's only one place to really test that, per se, is the, the government itself owns a, a test facility in Arnold uh, um up there by Nashville, and basically we would we would rent time, and GE would rent the time uh, on this same facility, and we would run our engines at high altitude. They actually have a pressure chamber uh, that runs the engine, assimilating like it was at you know forty thousand feet up in the air, uh, and so that you know you would test the engine on the high end of the level, and then when it all came down to the engines finally being developed, um, uh, we would go out to Edwards Air Force Base, and that was the first time we ever saw the airframes. Now we we knew that Lockheed wanted a pitching nozzle. They wanted a nozzle to deflect upward and downward. And we knew that Northrop didn't want that. But the pitching nozzle that Lockheed wanted was an added weight to our engine that almost weighed as much as the engine itself. You know, So we spent all this time trying to get the thrust to weight ratio really, really <laughs> improved. And all of a sudden, now they put a 2D nozzle on the back end of it. And now you basically doubled the weight of the engine uh, by right. having, of course, we, we, we attributed that to be part of an airframe weight and not the engine weight. And, they, of course, they did the same to us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but the basic story was that uh, we were we got out to Edwards. We put our engine into the YF-23, which is the Norfolk-based plane, and we got off the ground and we flew first. And we, you know, back in Florida and every place else, Pratt Whitney, where people were cheering, like, we did it. We, you know, we got our engine out. We hit our performance goals and we flew first. Now, flew first doesn't mean you won the contract. It just means that you were the first guys out there. Right. Um, now, GE put their engine into the F-22. And I, I, you know, you know, after working on that engine for, you know, a period of time and finally seeing the airframe, I personally thought the Northrop plane were really stealthy. It was like the coolest plane I'd ever seen in my life. And the Lockheed version really looked like a derivative of the F-15. Uh, of course, Lockheed, what they did is they took a working system and they just tweaked it till it was better. And Northrop just took a really advanced approach to really stealthiness. And we didn't know it at the time, but they were working on the B-2 bomber. So they took a lot of the knowledge that the B-2 bomber had worked on and put that into their plane. Now, they flew those systems for about three or four weeks and then they pulled the engines out and they swapped them into the other planes. And then all of a sudden they put our engine into the, to the Lockheed plane and they put the... Uh, GE engine is a Northrop plane, and GE took off and hit like the fastest speed they'd ever hit in the in the thing. And so all of a sudden we were, you know, we were kind of shocked, like, oh my God, GE really, you know, their their engine nailed the top speed. 
but their top speed was beyond what the paper requirements were for the engine. So the Air Force said, well, you know, we don't care. You know, it was kind of like saying, you know, the, <laughs> the speed limit's 95 and you just did 105. Well, we don't, we, you don't get any credit for that extra 20 miles an hour. Uh, so we were kind of, you know, we were kind of happy about that. But right. they, there was a serious amount of flying. And uh, and uh, there's, there's a story, I don't know how much people really knew about it, but uh, there was actually a situation where they were flying the planes in front of the congressman and Albert Edwards to demonstrate these high technology planes. And the, um, the pilot took a very low pass over the uh, crowd and he had the landing gear down. And when he withdrew the landing gear, the plane's FADAC control system said, if the landing gear is down, the rudder and stick are very dull. And when the landing gear is up, the rudder and stick are very dynamic. And so he was very low to the deck. He pulled the landing gear up, and all of a sudden he went into this porpoise mode where the plane went into this oscillation, and he actually slammed the plane on his belly and slid across the ground right in front of all the congressmen that they were asking more money for to develop the system. <laughs> Ouch. He, he, sur- he survived. Huge, yeah, I believe. He, yeah. it, was, it was like a it was like a 10-foot you know, fall to the ground, so he survived. But it was very, you know, it was one of those things where you just kind of like, oh, great, you know. Yeah. So, so after this uh, three week runoff, the, the, uh, the pairings had all been done. What, uh, what happened then? Well, uh, you know, as, as good data people went out there, um, the Air Force said, okay, we're going to go back and check our notes. And it was about probably about six months. And of course, um, what we immediately did is we took our engines back to the test stand. And they said, hey, you remember when we hit this level of thrust while on our test stands, we hit it even, you know, we added even five more percent, you know. And so everybody else was kind of jockeying their numbers around. But uh, they, um, I do remember that the day that they did announce that they had a big PA system at the Pratt Whitney facility and announced that we won the engine. Um, and everybody was cheering and everything. And I remember, you know, cheering along with everybody else. But I remembering at that time that it was very clear because the Soviet Union was in such financial straits. Um, and also by that time, uh, the Clinton administration was, uh, or actually, the, I think it was the George, the first George Bush administration and the Clinton administration were tapering their funding down, that it was soon very clear that we had won the engine, but, but we were not going to sell a high volume of number of planes. And so, um, so they, they, I think the formal announcement was sometime around, uh, um, 90, um, 92 is when they started the testing. And I guess, the Somewhere around 93, 94, they made the announcement. And so we spent a lot, most of the time then focusing on trying to make the plane, you know, um, maintainability. You know, we, we actually had to have a, a mechanic had to put a full uh, radiation suit on and then he had to go change the oil in the engine. And, you know, that was like a technology requirement for him to demonstrate. And uh, that was actually, a, we were more scared about that than we were about flying, <laughs> you know, because, you know, here's a guy with a helmet and gloves and, Trying to you know take these tiny little bolts off, and you right. know, it, was, it was one of those maintainability issues that that uh, really um, you know on the commercial side of the market is really important. Right. So so I want to go back uh, and talk a little more about development of the plane, but sort of the big picture is that uh, when all was said and done, my understanding, at least from Wikipedia, my my reference of the internet, is that there are only 187 operational. F-22 aircraft that were sold to the U.S. military. That, yeah, that's essentially true. And in and, fact, yeah. And how many engines, how many engines were you selling per aircraft? Uh, two. So. Two. <laughs> right. So you were hoping, you were hoping to sell 400 a year and over the entire production, you probably sold maybe four or 500 total. 
Yeah, that's true, and that's and that's I mean, and again, and again that's you know, that's the, that's the politics and the financial side of it, and that's um, you know, and again, that was one of those things where uh, you know the uh, it was it was a big challenge, and if if you recall uh, at that time frame. Um, you know, companies like Northrop and Grumman did merge, uh, and Lockheed and McDonnell Douglas did merge. And basically, because you, you know, even though they won these contracts, they realized that they weren't going to be able to be independently um, by themselves. Uh, Pratt was in a in a, um, a situation where we were getting some money out of it, but GE actually went through a very big downturn, and a lot of the aerospace engineers at GE uh, transitioned over to their their energy di- division. Uh, so there, there was, a, you know, in fact, I, I actually work at GE now, and there's there's not many people you can talk to about the, the, their version of the engine because a lot of those guys left and moved on to other things when they didn't in that contract. Yeah. So you earlier talked about during your interviews that uh, you went and uh, the folks from Pratt & Whitney were asking about your background in composites uh, because they, they sensed the need for composites, which – but they couldn't – the questioning didn't go very far because they didn't know much themselves. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about when you showed up at Pratt & Whitney, um, mm-hmm. what – as, as you know, the young buck coming from school and, and uh, anxious to, uh, you know, show us stuff, uh, what the what the uh, the culture was there and what it was like trying to come in and, and work for this big corporation? Sure, sure. You know, when I, when I uh, interviewed, uh, you know, I, I, they brought me down to the facility – and about half the places they wanted to show me, I couldn't go because I didn't have the right clearance. And so, you know, they would they would basically they'd go pound on this door, and some guard would look out the window and say, "Who do you want?" You know, and they they'd, they'd name the guy, and that guy would like squeeze out of this little tiny door, and they'd take me to like this little coffee table in the hallway, and you'd have your interview because he couldn't take you into the actual room where things were being designed. So I never actually saw guys like you know, you know, doing engineering work. I just talked to these people in these little tiny little tables. Uh, but like I say, fortunately, I did accept a job and I came in and uh, basically they, they had a, at Pratt Whitney, they had a, a thing they called the buddy system where they would team you up with somebody who had like five or six years of experience and he was going to be your buddy for the first six months of your life there. Mm-hmm. And that worked out great. Um, and so uh, I basically, I showed up the first day and uh they walked me into and they showed me my desk and I sat down and it was one of these desks where it was a, you know, a, a small, probably three by four desk. And then right next to it was this big 10 by six drawing board with one of those big L arms with the big arm on it, you know? And I said, Oh, that's interesting. What's that for? And I said, well, that's where you do your work. And I was like, what? And, you know, <laughs> I had gone through college and I had learned Harris CAD and I had learned the basics of ANSYS and NASTRAN. And so I was just, you know, on the verge of getting, you know, very good at doing 2D finite element analysis and 2D CAD systems. Now, you know, I hate to date myself, but they really didn't have 3D CAD systems when I came out of school. And they really didn't have 3D elements on the finite element systems either. And so I was thinking, well, you know, here I'm going to this huge company and we're going to do this great thing with this engine. And uh, I come in and, and they hand me a drawing board in three squares and a pencil and the guy says, you know, when you erase your pencil, here's a little thing to dot up the uh, debris so you don't get your elbow grease on it. And I was like, what? And, <laughs> and it really was a culture shock. And really uh, what had happened, you know, as I mentioned, that, you know, at the end of the uh, era of the NASA uh, space shuttle type of thing, that Pratt Whitney really hadn't hired a lot of new people on board. Um, and so it was basically a lot of guys who 
you know, there was a lot of people being hired in who were like, say, 23 to 30 years old. And then there was this big gap of almost nobody who was in their 40s. And then almost everybody else was in their 50s and 60s. And so um, the people who were in their 50s and 60s basically used, you know, closed form solutions like Rourke and Young books. And, uh, you know, they, they assumed everything was a beam or they assumed everything was a, a, a circle. And they just did a lot of rough order combination. Now, you think that that's kind of funny, but you got to remember, these are the same guys who designed the SR-71, you know, so... I mean, it's right. not it's not like it's a Mickey Mouse game, but it was like, you know, hey, um, you know, whatever worked to get the SR-71 was good enough for them to design the next generation engine. And, you know, all us, you know, when I hired in to the West Palm Beach facility, there was probably 3,000 employees there. And it soon swelled up to about 10,000 employees during that era. So they were hiring tons of people in my age group. And, of course, immediately they had to start stepping up to the CAD system and actually, one of the first things they did was they didn't have a, a common email system throughout the group either. And some of the old guys, uh, you know, as we refer to my, I hate to say it now because I'm an old guy, but um, <laughs> they they refused to get on the email, you know, so they wouldn't even answer. You'd have to like physically walk over to their desk and leave a note on their desk because they wouldn't you know, they wouldn't log into the email system because they claimed that they didn't know how to work or a computer. Right. Um, I think I still have to so, deal with that on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, like I say, the, the, uh, uh, you know, so, you know, from the, f I think I drew, I think I drew one drawing by hand just to kind of show that my mentor and everybody I knew I could actually draw because, you know, right. I did take a class in it, but, it, but there was a, there was a sun workstation with Anvil 5000 on it. And I got up from my desk and I went over and sat on that thing one day and I didn't get up for their month and I drew everything on it. And I remember my supervisor would look over my shoulder and I would have like a picture or something zoomed up really big, you know, and I was doing the detail work on it. And he goes, you know, we only draw things here in either full scale, quarter scale or half scale. And that's way too out of proportion, you know. And I said, and so I, I would, I would twist the zoom knob. You mean like this? And he'd go like, what's that? You know, and you know, it, he, it was just, it was very, you know, he, he didn't know how to supervise the new technology. And at the same time, the finite element modeling, you know, when I came in as a composite person, uh, we were dealing with uh, beam elements and plate elements, and we really needed to have a 3D element that could re represent a laminate. And so we figured out mathematically with rule of mixtures how to take the elements that we could to, could generate and we ended up writing Fortran code to generate a composite system. And so we ended up writing a composite system to generate the right material properties so that we could use these shell properties to represent a laminated composite. And then eventually the Nastran and ANSYS people started picking up the 3D elements and we started blending them into the composites. And then of course, uh, our outputs were all these green and white bar data sets that we'd have to go and just highlight the numbers uh, so we ended up uh, figuring out how to get Patran to link to the Nastran, and then we wrote Fortran code to make that happen. And then we figured out how to automate the system so we could do five or six runs. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, it became very evident that computing power, uh, they had one centralized computing system. And when we started running these finite element codes, the, the financial people couldn't cut checks anymore because computer was... <laughs> <laughs> so, the, so the company had to go out and buy a Cray computer. And uh, and then within about six months, we were overloading the Cray so bad they had to go buy a second Cray computer. And so 
it was really, you know, it was really the, you know, it was the golden era to learn how to do finer element modeling. And, uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the senior people took early retirements because, you know, they looked around and said, I'm too old to learn how to do this stuff. And so a lot of knowledge walked out the door. Uh, but at the same time, it was basically like, you know, uh, because we we were betting so much and trying to win this engine contract, the company was willing to spend the money to get everything up and running. And of course, the, you know, the that era, it's, you know, so common today, it's hard to explain to somebody that you couldn't get a color contour pro- plot of a stress element, you know. Right. But that's, I mean, that's what it was. It was, it was basically, I hired it in, in 87 and probably by 91, everything was up and running the way that, you know, is, is the current way. So it was like a three-year growth transition. So the IT, IT department was hiring people like crazy. The, uh, you know, the, the control systems, you know, the, the old engines control systems on a, on a gas turbine engine were basically push rods, you know, and all of a sudden they had these actuators, you know, and then, and then it was, you know, they went from a hydraulic actuator to an electrical actuator. And, and uh, it was it was very much everything around the engine was upgrading in some level. And the way we designed the engine was upgrading it. And the way we uh, tested the engines started becoming more of an automated system. And then we and then when we ran the engines out of the Edwards, we took all our strain gauge data and brought it back. And we, we ran simulations they had never been able to do before because we had all this data and could tie it right back to a finite element model. <laughs> so if all these uh, old, older engineers at the time were saying, I'm out of here because I don't think I can pick up this technology, I'm I'm guessing that likewise there were technologies that you looked at and said, Boy, I'm not sure I can I can grasp I can I can get a handle on it, but I need to if we're going to uh, if we're gonna move ahead. What were some of the things that you had to teach yourself while while you were working on this uh this F one nineteen engine? Um, good question. I like I say, I <clears throat> I graduated from school taking a Fortran class, and I wrote a lot of things in Fortran. And um, you know, C was popping its head up as being you know a language that uh, people were talking about. And I, you know, honestly, I was too busy trying to fix my problems with Fortran that I I didn't learn C. But some other people who hired in after me did, and so they started working on enhancements on other things. So we had kind of a mixed IT code. Uh, I would say the biggest thing I wasn't a good at was heat transfer. You know, you, everywhere you go for analysis, they always teach you structural analysis. But almost mm-hmm. every company treats heat transfer as a different, it's a, it's a science. You know, it's one of those codes like, um, you know, computational fluid dynamics. Nobody shares their codes because that's that's the, all their empirical knowledge tied to that code. Um, so... Uh, we had to figure out a way to tie our composites into the computational fluid dynamics codes. And I didn't really understand heat transfer enough to really know how that worked. And and I also was not a great aerodynamicist at the time. So when I was designing parts like airfoils and such, I would, you know, of course, try to make it as structurally sound. And the aerodynamicist guy would say, well, you know, you're, you're ruining my flow. And so I'd have to teach him what I was doing, and he'd have to teach me what to do. So I learned a lot more about aerodynamics than I ever learned before. And I learned a lot more about heat transfer than I ever learned before. And so uh, I did expand my knowledge that way. Uh, As I mentioned before, the Cray computer issue, uh, someone had figured out that there was this rumor about networking computers together. And someone had figured out how to tie 
a hundred sun computers that were under people's desk at night and start running Tacoma computation fluid dynamics codes on these computers while people weren't working on them. And all of a sudden they were getting solutions faster overnight than they were out of the crave running all day long. And, and people were complaining <clears throat> that the, uh, that, you know, they couldn't check their email because the computer was bogged down with running this. <laughs> and, 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 you know, it, it became, there was a, there was like a secret society that knew how to bomb your computer and take away all your CPUs to go do their work. <laughs> and, you know, and then you, <clears throat> you basically had to figure out how to turn their work off and get your work there and not let the, and, and it, it became, I became sort of a, uh, I'm not an expert, but I figured out how to like shield my work during my work time, and then and then we ended up, you know, having a we, we, we everybody of course had a a a you know your name was tied to a serial number of who you were, and mm -hmm. once you figured out who the person was who was bombing your computer, uh, you either got up from your desk and ran over and choked them, or you <laughs> or you said give me a dollar and uh, and I'll let you run, you know, on my system, so. <laughs> I think I remember from seeing hacking on TV. If you wanted to stop them, you just have to type faster than they do. Yeah, right. Well, <laughs> just, just mash the keyboard. So, I mean, if you could imagine, you know, these people in the 30s all arguing over the computer, and that's why these guys who were in their 50s were going like, I can't even, you know, I can barely write an email, and now they got some guy stealing my CPUs out from underneath me. So uh, that that was, you know. But uh, it turns out that distributing computer was one of those things we really worked on really well and really got their aerodynamics up. Uh, and it's actually one of the things that I brought with me when I when I joined GE originally. Uh, another fellow by the name of Bob Zacharias and I, um, I, I happened to be in charge of the, the computers and he in was in charge of the aerodynamics code. And we figured out how to network all the computers that weren't being used at the GE Energy Division. Uh, so while those guys weren't paying attention, we were running behind them, uh, you know, using their, their analysis as well. <laughs> Nowadays, IT would haul you off, and you'd be a cyber terrorist. Exactly right. <laughs> you know, it was it was it was kind of one of those things. Where, you know, when you when you hear about hacking, you know, we used to hack ourselves. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm sure if anybody was doing it nowadays, it, you know, thirty red flags would pop up. But at the time. There was such a naivety that people didn't really understand what was going on, and so they would, you know, they would like turn the power switch on and off on their computer, and of course, a guy running a distributed set would scream, you know, because all of a sudden, you know, one of, <laughs> one of his uh, systems was all hung up because this one computer was being rebooted and nothing could move forward on the next level of passing, you know. Yeah. So when I was working uh, early in my career, I worked for this company that was doing transmissions for for military vehicles. And so there was, you know, there was a healthy emphasis on getting things out, but also there was also expected that we were going to come in and, and work overtime that I, I think it was either two or four Saturday, or I'm sorry, two or three Saturdays of the month, we were expected to come in and pull, uh, put in a full eight hours. And so I'm wondering during this, you know, this, obviously this, uh, this important project for the company will make or break the company. What, what? what kind of hours you expected to work and what kind of stress you were operating under uh, during this period of time? Okay. That's a good question. Um, <clears throat> yeah. When I, when I hired in, they told us that they, that we, they were ramping up and that overtime was going to be expected. And they said that they were going to actually pay for overtime. And 
there was a history of people not getting paid for overtime um, for various reasons. Uh, it was considered voluntary time. So the way the, the company worked it was when I first hired in, I was, quote, unquote, ex I was um, exempt. Okay. So that okay. meant that when I got paid overtime, I got paid 2x of what my overtime was. But the people who had been for the company for more than a year were considered non-exempt, and they would get paid straight pay. So if I am <clears throat> me, freshly hired in, and a guy sitting next to me who had been there for two years worked any overtime, he was getting paid straight pay, and I was getting paid double pay. But that would that would only be true for the very first year I worked there, and then magically I'd become non-exempt, and I would fall back to the thing. So they said. If you're going to get paid overtime, you have to voluntarily donate two hours before you can get paid for another two hours. So that meant if you worked an eight-hour day, you'd work eight hours, you'd work an additional two hours for free, and then you'd work two more hours after that, and you'd get paid for those last two hours you did. So okay. <clears throat> my approach was, and I was, again, fresh out of school, in a new town, not knowing many people. So I said, I, I want to be outside in Florida because I was in West Palm Beach, Florida. So I said, why do I have to work at the end of the day? Why can't I work in the beginning of the day? So I would come in to work at four o'clock in the morning and I'd wow. work from four to six as my free time. And I'd work from six to three as my pay time. And then I'd work from three to five as my overtime. And then I'd be off from five and, and basically get an evening out of it. Of course, after about the third week, I'd find about eight o'clock at night, I'd start nodding off because <laughs> I couldn't, I, you know, I was getting up at four in the morning wasn't the best, you know, play to, you know, spend the day. You spend but, your nights on the town. Yeah. But uh, I would say that when I found out that, that, that they had that level of overtime, I worked 50 weeks of overtime at 2x pay the first year I was there. And so I was hired in at, at, a, at a dollar value of X. And the next year I got like a 6% raise, which was, mm -hmm. which was pretty good at the time. And I actually took a pay cut because <laughs> I got the raise, but I fell back from being exempt to non-exempt and I stopped getting the 2X overtime. Um, but I was able to pay off all my student loans in the first year. So basically I, I, I basically made a lot of money, but I, I, you know, it wasn't in my pocket per se. It was basically paying all my past bill expenses and such. Yeah. And then, um, like I say, I pretty much worked a 60-hour uh, week uh, a lot of times for two or three years. And it was very common, uh, unfortunately, for military contracts where everything kind of ended uh, somewhere around September for what they call the, middle, the, the physical year. So right. there was this thing where... You know, somewhere around August, they'd say, you know, we got to spend this money or we're going to lose it, kind of one of those things. And so the month of August was, you know, it's like zombies. You know, people people were like, you know, leaning against, you know, they'd bend over to get a drink of water at the drinking fountain. And you, you know, nodding off because they basically didn't work in so much time. And then, and then the other side of the coin was that come Christmas time, a lot of the people who had families – uh, really just couldn't work that, that level of time. And so they came to us, the young single guys, and said, hey, uh, you know, Joe here wants to spend a few hours with his wife on Christmas Day, so can you work, you know, an extra eight hours to cover him, Bill, Bob, and Ted? And so, you know, they, they – and so I actually worked a few Christmases where I was into the point where 
Um, I, I, I didn't even go home. I just went to the fitness center and took a shower, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, so this entire program was, was it, uh, was it limited to the four years or did, did your involvement continue beyond the development program into uh, the production for a while? Um, I pretty much, once, once they won the contract, um, I went from being, you know, test and development to probably, uh, you know, cost reductions, you know, I, so I was still working on the parts, but we were trying to figure out how to manufacture them. So we, we became sort of supply chain people and said, okay, if this is what it needs to make this part, we got to figure out how to make the part for half the cost. We just made it at, uh, as for the demonstration part. So, mm -hmm. you know, I went from being preliminary design, structural designer, test engineer to now a supply chain guy. And that took about three or four years to really get, grind all those numbers down and that's, you know, that was also a lot of flying the vendors, you know, going out to fiber people, going out to molding people, going out to machining people and trying to work the prices on that and, and, you know, figuring what we could do as far as a design change that wouldn't upset the part per se. Um, mm -hmm. so, uh, right around the time, um, uh, let's see, then, then, then the, um, it's almost like, you know, at Pratt, when you once, once we won the fly off, um, the engine kind of, it was kind of like your child went off to college. You know, you weren't, you weren't there all the time touching the engine. You were, you know, you were trying to make the environment cheaper and lowering costs. I stepped over and started taking on some other roles. I worked on a, uh, like a high speed rocket and I worked on a couple of other things uh, as well. And, and I kind of drifted away from that program per se. And I actually left the company in 1999. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, I, I really, I had like five or six years, really golden years, and then everything kind of like, you know, like slowed down. And, and I, I didn't mention it before, but a lot of the work I did was uh, classified. And so our classified computing rooms were set up as uh, what they call general rooms, which means that there could be somebody else in the room working on something that was completely different than you knew. And they didn't have the right to know what you're doing, and you didn't have the right to know what they were doing. And so they had a bunch of desks that had curtains around them, like voting booths. And okay. and your your plan was you walked into the room, you sat down, and you pulled the curtain, and then you and so no one could look over your shoulder and see what you were working on. But because of the room being what they call a mixed environment room, nobody could talk. You couldn't speak outside, and you couldn't speak. And also because it was a secure room, you couldn't bring any audio equipment in, so you couldn't listen to any music. And so it was basically a whole night of just nothing but keyboard taps, you know, all, oh, all the time. And then, you know, the room would, you'd hear the room door open and close, but nobody would ever say, you know, if you sneeze, nobody would say, God bless you. You know, it was just, <laughs> really, and, and I actually was in the cafeteria line once and I looked down and I saw somebody's brown shoes and I go, Hey, I know that guy because I, <laughs> because the curtain, you know, only went down about your, your shin. And so as people walked by my desk area, I would only recognize their shoes and, you know, guys being guys that wear the same shoes every day. Um, I realized that there's a guy's shoes and I looked up and I saw his face for the first time. Uh, it was, it was a very strange environment. And, and actually after that, that rush of getting that engine out to the field and getting it tested, I really wanted to get out of that room. You know, I was living in South Florida and I was spending basically 10 hours a day locked up in a, in a black room. And so I, I voluntarily kind of left that program to get outside and, and spend more time outside and see the sunshine and actually have a desk with a window view. Right. So you've mentioned that you've, you've moved on since to uh, general electric and uh, you, 
are you mentioned you'd come over and were in charge of some computing functions. Are you still doing that, or, or what are your professional duties these days? Well, I, well when I left Pratt Whitney, um, the Joint Strike Fighter was really starting to take off as far as the new design, and uh, and that was one of those things where you know the what eventually is now I think it's the F thirty five and F thirty six you know uh, system. Uh, I knew a lot about that system, and when I left Pratt Whitney. Uh, I was under a restriction where I could not work on those type of engines uh, for a two-year time period. So when I left Pratt Whitney, I joined General Electric, but I joined their their, their energy division. So I worked on gas turbines that spun generators, and uh, you know they were completely different than you know they were gas turbines by name, but they didn't have a fan, they didn't have uh, you know advanced composites, they didn't have a lot of things. And so when I first came on board. Um, I came to the facility in Greenville, South Carolina, and I uh, started working on power systems and I was, you know, kind of learning the business. And one day I mentioned to my boss that my computer sucked and it couldn't really run the models the way I wanted to do it. And he said, well, what would you do if you were in charge? And I said, well, the first thing I do is I do this, 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 and this. And he said, great. Now you're in charge of doing that. <laughs> you so like you volunteered. So, so all of a sudden, I became in charge. I became a program manager of the uh, engineering tools and computing systems, and I started uh, dealing with uh, at that time IBM and Dell and uh, Silicon Graphics had, and you know they had they had basically Unix boxes under people's desks that were HP systems, and the PC was starting to get powerful enough and cheap enough that it was competing with it, and so I complained about the Unix box being basically a dog. And I was in charge of, you know, de defining what the package was going to be for the PC system under the desk with what we call, you know, basically a Windows system. And, of course, I was, you know, I knew how the system ought to work, but I didn't knew nothing about the architecture. So I got paired up with uh, two or three really good IT people. And uh, those guys basically, you know, they, they took my, my whiny complaints about the computing system and translated it into actual specs. And then those specs are what we used to find it. And so we, so we went out and uh, we basically transitioned all the computing system over to the, um, over to a PC based system. And that's, as I mentioned before, this fellow named Bob said, Hey, since you're changing all the computers around, why don't you add an extra CPU to the system so that I can, you know, run my distributed network? And he, he had also come from Pratt Whitney as well. And uh, so we basically did a compute, uh, computing upgrade. Um, that took about, two and a half years to get that done. And then I stepped uh, back into a role uh, more associated with composites, but it was completely different composites. I, I really uh, was mostly working on uh, ceramic composites when I joined the energy group. And, you know, they, they have a single spool gas turbine. They don't have a fan on their system. And so the only way that they can get more power is to not improve their fan, but to actually improve their turbine. And so in the aviation business, your compressor is the big bread and butter for going fast. And in the in the ground turbine world, the turbine is where all the money is. And so I, I basically switched from being a compressor designer over to a turbine designer and started bringing in advanced composites into that system. Hmm. So I, I worked for GE Energy. Um, and I, you know, I, uh, their, their composite group, and when I say group, I mean two people, uh, were had had changed hands. It was it was one of those things where I wasn't the first composite person, but I was the only person who stayed more than eighteen months on that particular job. 
And I basically took that, that job and turned it into, say, a seven-year uh, stint. And we basically introduced a advanced material systems into ground-based gas turbines and demonstrated that uh, even though they were more expensive, we could actually get more performance out of the parts. And uh, and as I was working on that, again, I was basically came back to being a materials development person. And, of course, you know, GE being GE, um, you know, I was drinking out of the same materials group as, as the aviation division was. And so after about eight years of developing some really good systems for energy, I went over to aviation and they said, hey, why don't you come join us and help us develop our systems, which are the the new composite systems that are being generated for the next generation aviation engines. Now, when I say aviation, I'm, I'm talking about um, commercial aviation. So the, the next generation GE engines are like the LEAP engine or the GE9X. And uh, both of those systems have advanced materials in there. Uh, right. both but, the, but still, nonetheless, sort of a full circle back to back to aviation. Right, right. I, I mean, I, I personally enjoy aviation. Uh, you know, I, like I say, I, I grew up around the military and I um, now, you know, again, you know, there's nothing more industrial than a gas turbine for generating power. But, um, you know, I, I knew very little about the generators themselves. All I know is don't touch that wire. You know. <laughs> so I mean, that's I mean, so that's basically what I do now. And, uh, I, you know, I've been working on you know, there's been enough composites at, at GE Aviation now for. Uh, now the biggest concern is how do we take composites and make them uh, long, you know, last longer. So there's been many years of metal parts being overhauled and repaired, and for the longest time, composites were never really thought to be a material that you could overhaul and repair. So now I'm in the process of developing systems to help overhaul and repair composites as well as develop new technologies for them. Wow, that is very neat. Yeah, very neat. Um, so as as part of your duties at GE, I understand that you uh, you spent a little time mentoring younger engineers. Yes, I'm, I'm actually a principal engineer, and part of my challenge is uh, about eighty percent of my work is is divine, you know, around doing you know general engineering work, and twenty percent of it's supposed to be helping uh, people you know get better at where they are. And again, I mentioned you know I started working in the '80s, so I'm you know I'm I'm on the high end of the. I'm almost the people that said, I don't want to learn how to use, you know, email. Right. Uh, you know, I'm, virtual reality, finite <laughs> element analysis, where you draw the line. <laughs> exactly. I, I haven't drawn the line permanently, but, you know, uh, I do overhear people talking about some systems. And I'm thinking like, oh, my God, I'm, you know, I, I, I know what it was like when, you know, when, when I looked at, you know, Bob at the other place going like, you'll never learn this old guy. And I'm thinking like, I'm never going to learn that. So, uh, but yes, I mean, basically my role is to, to take people and, uh, you know, again, um, when it comes to ceramic matrix composites, um, it's a very new technology. There aren't a lot of people that know a lot about it, and there's almost nobody who knows about how to repair it. So part of my job is to go around and show people what we've done in the past and how how you do a repair out of a polymer composite and what can be repaired in a similar way in a, in a ceramic composite and what has to be different. And then uh, the other side of it is, um, you know, it's it's also to come in and say, you know, as, as a new engineer, you know, these are the five basic skills you need to have in the first two years that you're at this company. And after you get those five skills mastered, then you need to address these other areas. But don't, you know, I, I, it's basically trying to teach people Basically, you know, it's it's a you know, if you're going to be here at this company, it's sort of like you know, it's a it's a journey, you know, 
it's not, you know, some, you're not going to, you know, end your career in one week, in one day. And I, I find a lot of people coming in that I work with um, are, are very hesitant about doing something. And I think it has a lot. I, uh, I'm a, I'm a principal. I'm also a PE. And when you take the PE exam, they give you a lot of word problems about how to solve certain situations. Right. And, you know, there's only one right answer according to the PE exam. And, yep. and, I, and I'm constantly telling people, you know, you learned how to do something in, in a particular way, but we pay you to solve it in a different way because everybody else is solving it in the same way. And so, you know, you need to think differently. You know, you need to try something and you need to encourage people to, to you know, be willing to fail and not look take it as being something that's going to be ruining your reputation. And so I, I do a lot of innovation training and I do a lot of coaching in the fact that my main, my main message is, is think differently. You know, don't, don't just try to make, you know, don't try to be 5% better. Try to be 500% better, you know. And if it costs you, you know, if it costs you $1,000 to be 5% better, it's not going to cost you $5 million to be 500% better. It's going to cost you a little less, but you're so much better if you're 500% better than you are 5% better. So you mentioned the, uh, the the changes that have come that come during the course of a engineering career. As you look back over over the time you spent in engineering, are there any sort of big uh, overarching, you know, directions, topics, uh, you know, general directions that you've seen in the engineering profession? Well, I would have to say that I've only uh, had the the benefit of working for very large corporations like Pratt Whitney and GE, and I and I think, like I say, I mentioned very early on that I realized that. Not only the leaders of these companies make decisions, but the governments that fund these companies make decisions and the military and, you know, somebody over in North Korea will affect my job. And so I, I, I constantly find myself like when I wake up in the morning, I usually read the Australian newspaper on the Internet first, and then I'll read the German newspaper next uh, not necessarily in their language, but, you know, translated, of course. Mm-hmm. But then I get around to reading the U.S. news because I find that those those things, and, and, I, and I basically read all about technology and innovation and, and politics because they do affect the way I are. You know, one of the reasons I left Pratt Whitney was it was very evident to me that in that era um, that, the you know, 1999, that was, that was the technology boom. You know, that was everybody's stock market was going through the roof. And Pratt Whitney was an industrial business, and there was people becoming millionaires for basically generating web pages that you know I really didn't understand. And I thought maybe Pratt Whitney was behind the times, and so I thought maybe jumping to a different company. Uh, and you know, GE at that time had Jack Welch as the leader, and he was really gung ho about the internet. And so by jumping over to GE, I thought maybe this is the way that I can catch that next wave of what the internet was going to bring to the business. Um, so I, you know, I, I say, you know, don't, don't get caught where you're, you know, you have a myopic perspective of what it is to do your job. You know, you really got to think about what's, what's also influencing your business. And, you know, I got an MBA around that same time period because I thought, you know, maybe I have to jump off and become a, an internet guy, you know, and, and I can't go in there and say, Hey, uh, I just designed a gas turbine. Let me work on your webpage. So I thought, <laughs> you know, you know, I, 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 let me, you know, to me, the MBA was the first thing I needed, was the easiest thing for me to do at that time to get prepared to address a different business out there. Now, you know, it just turns out that, you know, I kind of took a deep detour for a little while and ended up right back in composites again. 
But you know, even today, I still look around and go, uh, you know, look at the look at the X Prize. Look at um, you know, everybody's going into space right now. Uh, you know, that wasn't happening when I was. You know, uh, you know, the space shuttle was kind of operational, but it really wasn't the gung ho place to be. Uh, mm -hmm. But you know, I look at SpaceX now. I look at uh, you know some of these other programs. And I'm thinking like, wow, you know, we we are going to be mining an asteroid in about a year or two from now. So neat. Well, uh, we should uh, we should probably be wrapping this up and and letting you get on with your evening. So so let me so ask this final question: If you have a free day, you know, a free weekend these days, uh, mm -hmm. what do you do with it? What do you go do for fun? Um, actually, um, I kind of, uh, I, I like to work with hand tools and I like to look at, uh, like restoring furniture and antique furniture. So, uh, you know, a lot of times it was my wife and I will go out and look at antiques and, uh, and it's, it's a little technical, but not super technical. And it's a little bit of, you know, art and science mixed together, but mostly, you know, those kind of more domestic terms rather than, you know, say like doing wildly engineering things. <laughs> I just found out there's actually a uh, well-regarded furniture school about 45 minutes outside of Raleigh or so hmm. in uh, Pittsburgh, North Carolina. I can't remember the name of it to save my life right now, but one of my coworkers was telling me about it. Yeah, I, I, for some reason I always thought I wanted to go to a blacksmithing school, but I, that never happened. <laughs> <laughs> Won't be too busy trying to make engine parts with the, with the smelter and the anvil, hammering them out. Exactly. Well, maybe when you retire, you'll have a little extra time for taking on that activity. Right. All right. Well, somebody uh, wants to get a hold of you, Herb, has some questions. Uh, is there any place that we should direct them? Sure. Uh, my email is basically herbertroberts at gmail.com. And I do have a Twitter account, but I don't Twitter that much. But it's basically the at symbol and then two underscore many underscore rules. So too many rules. <laughs> <laughs> And how did you come up with that uh, handle? Uh, again, it's it's basically my my uh, frustration with uh, trying to get stuff done. You know, it's like, uh, you know, when when you work in composites, a lot of people say, well, you can't do that, and you you kind of say why, and they say, well, because nickel doesn't do that. And you say, wait, wait, I'm not working with nickel. I'm working with this, and they go like, yeah, but but still, you can't do that because you know, and it's it's just a. If anybody who works in composites, they're nodding their head and then they understand. <laughs> composites have, have basically it's it's a it's a tough it's a tough uh, place to work in a in a metal world. Right, right. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us on uh, the Engineering Commons and and uh, sharing your experiences with us. Okay. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Herb. Yes. Thank you. Very interesting. See you, Herb. Sure. <laughs> The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson.